You're listening to a podcast appearing on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Athletes sustain all sorts of musculoskeletal injuries. I'd put good money that most athletic trainers and sports medicine physicians feel pretty comfortable evaluating an ankle, a knee, or a shoulder, but what happens when the trauma is to the abdomen? How confident do you feel in identifying something that may be brewing to one of the internal organs in the abdomen? Today on the podcast, we will cover sports-related abdominal trauma with an emergency medicine physician. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Sue Karelik. Dr. Karelik is a pediatric emergency physician who has practiced pediatric emergency medicine in the Denver metro area for 26 years. She completed a residency in pediatrics at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C., followed by a fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine at Children's Hospital in Oakland. Dr. Karelik is also the medical director of the Rocky Mountain Pediatric Ortho One Center for Concussion. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Karelik. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. I think many of us who have been around athletes for a while have seen at least a few cases of traumatic abdominal injuries. I know it's certainly not something as common as a fracture or concussion. So how does abdominal trauma stack up in terms of other types of trauma that we may see on a field or a court? Yeah, it's definitely a less common form of trauma that we see, particularly in the emergency department. You know, overall trauma is the leading cause of death and disability in children, and abdominal trauma is only about 8 to 10% of what we see in the hospital. But even though it's rare, it's actually the third most common trauma-related cause of death in kids um, behind head and chest injury. So even though we don't see it often, we really have to know about it. Um, It's the most common unrecognized fatal injury, and most of what we see with pediatric abdominal trauma is blunt trauma, and certainly in sports, it's primarily blunt trauma to the abdomen. We see injuries from, you know, motor vehicle collisions, bikes, falls, and sports in general only accounts for about 10% of abdominal trauma. It's important when we're talking about these rare things. I mean, we, we love to talk about all the things we see commonly all the time, but I think it's important for all of us to recognize these things that are going to pop up during our careers on a sideline or a court. There was yeah. a study published in 2019 that looked at the high school Rio database for internal organ injuries. Can you tell us a little bit about what that study found? Yeah, so that was a good study. It not only looked at the high school Rio database, but some NCAA data and some data from the National Center for Catastrophic Sports Injury Research. It looked at about 10 years of data. And in that time, there were only 174 direct contact injuries. Most of those were actually in high school, about 124 were in high school, 41 in the NCAA, most in males and most in football and primarily in contact sports. Most were actually splenic injuries. So when we talk about sports related blunt abdominal trauma, a lot of times it's the spleen that we're dealing with. Unfortunately, Four of those resulted in death, overall seven catastrophic injuries in high school and two in collegiate athletes. So even though it's exceedingly rare, we've got to be aware of that splenic trauma because it can sometimes progress rapidly and kids can come in very sick. Yeah. And, you know, we're obviously a pediatric oriented podcast, hence the pediatric sports medicine podcast title. So how should we think about kids compared to adults when it comes to abdominal trauma? You know, I think both of us hate the, you know, the kids are not little adults kind of thing or, you know, kind of that line. So what are some of the things we need to consider that are different with kids? Yeah, right. Kids are not little adults, even though we hate that line. It's the truth. 
in general, kids are more likely than adults to have blunt abdominal trauma. They're proportionately different from adults. They're built a little different when it comes to abdominal trauma. Their abdominal muscles aren't as well developed, especially in younger children, and they don't have as much intra-abdominal fat to kind of cushion those solid organs. They've got this rubbery compliant rib cage. So when you hit your chest, your lower chest, that can translate forces directly to the liver and spleen without causing rib fractures. In adults, we tend not to worry so much about injuries to liver and spleen if they don't have a rib fracture, but in kids, they can have a completely normal chest and have pretty significant trauma below. They're higher risk for multiple injuries. All those organs are just packed in closely together, more easy to injure. Now, not only are they more likely to have abdominal trauma, but injuries can be harder to identify. They can present really subtly, less likely to have positive exam findings than adults. And the littler they are, the harder they get to evaluate. They get scared. They cry. We don't know if they're crying because their belly hurts or because they're just afraid of the situation. And the other thing you have to be really careful of in pediatric patients is they're really good at vasoconstricting. They're really good at maintaining a blood pressure, even in the face of significant blood loss. So sometimes early in shock, all you see is a tachycardia and you maintain your blood pressure. And that's really different from adults because adults tend to trend up with their heart rate and down with their blood pressure. And you get some early clues about shock with blood pressure but not kids. Once you have hypotension, you're really behind the eight ball and you've got to move very quickly to deal with shock. The other thing that's different is how we evaluate these patients because we worry a little bit more about radiation exposure, about the potential for creating malignancies down the road. So we have to be really thoughtful about how we choose imaging in these patients. Those are some great points. I know it's, you know, it's always a challenge when we talk about kids and, and thinking about that because there's so much emphasis for most of us with our training, at least going through it, unless obviously you're doing pediatric specific training, you know, even in medical school, I'm sure for athletic trainers, physical therapists, there's so much adult-based type mm-hmm. stuff. And yeah. we just have to remember we can't translate all that adult knowledge down to the kid yeah, and just exactly. hope that it's the same. Yeah. In general, if we're suspecting an injury to an internal organ, what should we really be thinking about when we're taking a history on someone? And then what should we focus on on our physical exam? Obviously, we're going to start with, you know, whether or not there was potential trauma to the abdomen. And sometimes that's a little tricky, you know, with little kids in sports, sometimes they come off the field with an injury without really knowing what happened. If there are concerns about abdominal trauma, are they complaining of abdominal pain? That would be worrisome for potential intra-abdominal injury. Are they complaining of shoulder pain? That's a good one to be aware of because we certainly have had kids present with only shoulder pain with a splenic or a liver injury because of irritation of the diaphragm. That's called sign, where you have pain radiating to the shoulder. So if you've got a normal shoulder exam and your shoulder hurts, think about the belly. Nausea, vomiting are significant. And then the other thing to look at in addition to acute symptoms, are there any conditions which might put these kids at risk? Do they have an enlarged liver or spleen because perhaps they recently had mono? Or do you live in an area where you do see kids with malaria? When I practiced in Washington, D.C., we actually saw kids with malaria that had immigrated from Africa and had enlarged spleens. Are there any hematologic disorders? And think about teenagers. Is there any potential for pregnancy in teenage girls? Now, once you've done your history, move on to your physical exam, look at general parents. Do they look sick? Do they look shocky? Pay really close attention to your vital signs. Are they tachycardic out of proportion to the degree to which they're upset? Look for signs of shock. 
palpate pulses and trend pulses. Are pulses starting to decrease over time and weaken? That can be an indicator of shock. If you have the ability to do a blood pressure, look for narrowing of the pulse pressure. That can be an early sign of shock. How are they perfusing? Are they alert and oriented or are they disoriented and having a hard time mentating because perhaps they're not perfusing so well? Are they having mottled or clammy skin? Do they have cool extremities? Those are all clues that something serious might be going on. If they look stable, then look at the belly. Do they have any overlying, you know, abrasions, bruises, evidence of trauma outside the abdomen? Do they have peri-umbilical ecchymosis? So that's called Cullen sign where you have bruising around your belly button. Do they have any bruising on their flank or their lateral abdominal wall? That's called Great Turner sign. Those are both signs of intraperitoneal blood, and that's worrisome for significant abdominal trauma. Does the belly look distended? Is it tender to the touch when you examine it? All of those things are quite concerning for a potential intra-abdominal injury. As a, an emergency medicine physician, you know, if we have a parent, you know, a lot of situations, especially if we're talking about maybe some younger kids that are not in high school, they may not have an athletic trainer available to assess them. And you had a kid who comes off the sideline, they may have had some abdominal trauma and the parent or the coach there is kind of wondering, well, what should I do? Should I send this person to the emergency department? Because, you know, lots of kids come off with a stomach ache as an example. And well, what's a worrisome sign that really we should be thinking about this kid needs to go to the emergency department? Yeah, you know, I think if it's a brief stomach ache and they rest a few minutes and they feel better and aren't reporting symptoms, they haven't vomited, they you look at their belly, they don't have any bruising. I think you can kind of wait and watch in that situation. But if they really are persistently complaining of abdominal pain, just isn't getting better over time. If you press on their abdomen, we even have parents do this over the phone sometimes, you know, put a hand on the belly and push. Does that seem to hurt them? Do you see any bruising? Have they thrown up? That kid really needs to go to the emergency department for evaluation because, you know, the problem with kids is sometimes they can have a completely normal abdominal exam and still have some pretty significant trauma to spleen or liver or other organs in the belly, and they need evaluation in the emergency department. So I'd actually have a low threshold to refer these kids if you're worried about abdominal injury. So they've come into your emergency department and you're going to assess them. What would kind of be an expectation of kind of your workup? You know, you've obviously done your history and physical exam. You're concerned about an abdominal trauma. How do you typically work these kids up? Yeah. So the first thing I'm going to do is make sure they're not shocky. And if they do present in shock, then we're going to start with fluid resuscitation and quickly progress to providing blood. But once we set that aside, they're not in shock. I just have a kid with abdominal trauma and abdominal pain. Then I really need to decide, am I going to image them or am I going to do some serial observation? And I actually had a great case just two days ago of a little six-year-old who was playing knee hockey with his brother in the basement and inadvertently got a hockey stick right into his belly. And for about an hour, sat on the couch at home complaining of abdominal pain until primary care doc referred him in, had a little abrasion on his abdomen. And on exam, it was kind of hard to tell, was it just tenderness where that abrasion was or did he truly have some intra-abdominal tenderness? So because he looked really stable. We actually used initially ultrasound to image him and then did serial abdominal exams with some labs and ultimately were able to get by without CT. So that's one approach we might take in some pediatric patients. One study that we do in the emergency department is called a FAST exam. So that's a focused assessment with sonography and trauma. That's what FAST stands for. And it's where you look at four different areas in the belly to see if there's any peritoneal blood in the belly. It's a really 
really good study in adult patients. Here's another difference between kids and adults. But in pediatric patients, only about 50% of the time will it tell you that there's blood in the belly. So we might use that as an initial screening exam. If you do see blood in the belly, you're going to proceed to CT or if they're unstable to surgery, possibly. If there's no blood, then you need to you know, think about other indicators for CT. Now, if we're really worried about solid organ injury or a significant injury to the bowel, then we're going to proceed to CT. CT is really the gold standard. It's a great study for looking at liver, spleen, kidneys. It's reasonably good at pancreas. It can miss some bowel injuries. But that's really our gold standard to do a CT with IV contrast. And if a patient needs it, the potential risk is really worth it because we're going to be able to really know what's going on in that belly. When we do CT, there is a theoretical risk about one in a thousand pediatric CT scans can cause a cancer down the road. And that's why we're kind of careful about our approach to make sure that we really need that CT scan. The other thing that we sometimes do are lab studies. Now, when you have significant abdominal trauma early on, if you have somebody in shock, the results of your labs isn't really going to change your approach. But in a, a kid like my little hockey stick kid, we actually did do comprehensive panel looking at his liver enzymes and his pancreatic enzymes and just getting a baseline blood count. And sometimes those lab results can point us in the direction of imaging if there are some abnormalities in certain situations. You mentioned CT scan, and obviously we all have concerns about unnecessary radiation to kids in general, certainly from the CT scan. And, you know, I think we know that the pediatric centers are going to do a much better job than necessarily a kind of a community hospital may not have those pediatric imaging guidelines. You know, we know there's criteria, the PCARN criteria that we think about for when do you need a CT scan for a kid after they've had a head injury. Are, are there similar criteria that you guys use for abdominal trauma? Yeah, there are decision rules as well. PCARN also has an abdominal trauma decision rule in, a, in addition to the head injury decision rule. And there's also a decision rule by the Pediatric Surgery Research Collaborative that helps guide us on whether or not we should do imaging. So those are definitely things that we can look at in the emergency department. Great. We'll make sure to have links to those types of guidelines out there in our show notes for people to reference to for sure. You know, you talked about doing fluid resuscitations to start off with. Are there other things that you would do as your kind of preferred treatment besides fluid resuscitation if someone looks like they're in shock after you've done imaging? It used to be that the standard was to give, you know, 40 cc's per kilo of normal saline. Now we move more quickly to blood product resuscitation. You know, you're not bleeding normal saline. And if you give normal saline, you're going to dilute your oxygen carrying capacity as you're bleeding. So if we're concerned about bleeding, we would do a balanced resuscitation with whole blood or packed red cells with fresh frozen plasma and platelets with significant bleeding. There's really good literature in the adult world to support progressing to blood product resuscitation very quickly. Not so clear in the pediatric literature just because multi-trauma and complicated trauma is less common in pediatric patients, but just logically it makes sense. So that's something we'd move to pretty quickly. And then what situations do we need to think about where we're probably going to need to be talking to our pediatric surgical colleagues after an abdominal injury? Anybody who's got a positive finding on their CT scan, we're going to involve the pediatric surgeon. And anybody with potential abdominal trauma who presents in shock, we're going to talk to or progresses to shock, right? We got to watch these kids very carefully because even if they show up looking pretty good in my emergency department, there is potential for ongoing bleeding and developing shock. We're going to involve pediatric surgeons 
surgeons very quickly. Now, the primary place where I work, I actually don't have in-house pediatric surgery. So we involve the pediatric surgeons at a different trauma center and get those kids transferred if needed. So where whatever your resources are in your area, know where your pediatric trauma center is, know how to access those pediatric trauma resources in your setting. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion on sport-related abdominal injuries. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts... You know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. So we are back and we are talking with Dr. Sue Karelik about sports-related abdominal trauma. Sue, earlier you mentioned the spleen is the most common organ injured. Why don't we take our listeners through some of the individual organs that are injured and how we think about each of them. And since it is the most commonly injured organ, we'll start with the spleen. So Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about how a splenic injury may present and how you may work it up. Splenic injuries can happen from a direct blow to your left upper quadrant or your left lower chest wall. So a heavy hit in football or perhaps that hockey stick into that left upper quadrant. Um, These kids can present with obvious findings, um, such as left upper quadrant pain or tenderness. Sometimes they have lower rib tenderness without significant belly tenderness. And sometimes they just present with pain that radiates to the shoulder. Sometimes they can progress to have peritoneal signs, so significant guarding or rebound tenderness. And, you know, in rare situations, they might present with shock. We've diagnosed the splenic injury. What's a typical management for a splenic injury? I know we, we've all heard about having your spleen removed and the consequences of that afterwards. So is that the typical management if you've hurt your spleen? Yeah, fortunately, that is not the typical management. So this brings us to talking about non-operative management. And this is one of the things that has trickled up from the pediatric world to the adult world. You know, a lot of times we develop things in adult medicine, and then they are later adopted in pediatric medicine. And this is one of those rare situations where kids helped adults. 
in many cases with splenic injury, the bleeding will stop spontaneously, even with some pretty significant splenic trauma. Kids have smaller blood vessels. They vasoconstrict better, as I mentioned. And so if you just give it some time and you support their blood pressure with fluid and blood, a lot of times they'll stabilize. They'll normalize their heart rate. They'll resolve their shock. The failure rate of non-operative management is about 5%, and if they're going to fail, if they continue to bleed, it usually happens within about 12 hours, so it happens pretty early. And actually, some studies have shown that inpatient mortality is actually lower with non-operative management of the liver and spleen in particular. Now, if we're going to do this, these kids have to be in the right place. They have to be in a pediatric trauma center or a trauma center with pediatric capabilities. They have to have a surgeon who is on standby to take those kids in the OR if they start to fail and have significant bleeding. And they have to be in an ICU setting so they can be really closely monitored. They get put on strict bread rest, they get serial hematocrits, they get serial physical exams, they get their vital signs monitored very closely, and most of the time they can keep their spleens, and we like being able to keep the spleen because if you don't have your spleen, there's a lifelong risk of sepsis and infection. You've got to remember to give them pneumococcal and meningococcal vaccines and follow them very closely when they have febrile illness. So the days of just rushing to the operating room and removing the spleen are, thank goodness, really gone. Yeah, it's nice to have that approach now rather than think of it almost like the appendix that we can mm-hmm. do without it, that we, we really do want to keep the spleen in place if we can. Yeah. So if we move from the left side of the abdomen to the right side, and we talk about the liver, how do liver injuries typically present and what concerns do we need to have with a suspected liver injury? So liver, some ways similar to spleen, where it can happen from a direct blow to the right upper quadrant or right lower chest. But the thing that's a little different is liver is more prone to deceleration mechanisms. Perhaps a really hard hit in football with a sudden deceleration might put a patient at risk for a liver injury. But really, we think more of it in car accidents. They also have a higher risk of presenting with massive bleeding just because that liver is so close to the inferior vena cava. So if you lacerate close to the big blood vessel and actually lacerate into your big blood vessel, then that's a huge problem. And kind of same presentation as splenic injury where you have pain, but in this circumstance, it's localized to the right upper quadrant. You might have tenderness in the belly, right upper quadrant, generalized or over your ribs. And again, you can have that curse line where you radiate pain to your shoulder and you can develop peritoneal signs and shock as well. So if you have that liver injury, what workup's the right step here? I'm assuming kind of the same things you've talked about before. Yeah, potentially starting with that fast ultrasound exam, progressing to CT if we do have concerns for liver injury. And this is one situation where labs actually might help us decide on imaging. If we have a kid with kind of an equivocal exam and we're not sure if we want to image them, if you are found to have elevated transaminases, that actually correlates with positive CT findings of the liver. So if we have an ALT or an AST that's elevated, we would actually get a CT scan to look at that liver. And then we've determined the liver has been injured. What is the way that we typically manage this? Hopefully not removing the liver. Right. Never removing the liver, right? That would not be good. You kind of need your liver, but sometimes they actually can remove a lobe of the liver to control bleeding. But again, the goal here is also to do non-operative management if possible, stabilizing with fluid and blood, observing them very closely to see if the bleeding stops. If they have 
shock that's unresponsive, then they might need to go for surgery. But the other thing that potentially could happen if you're in the right kind of center is to do angiographic embolization in the radiology suite. There is potential for threading a catheter in and deploying something to clot off a blood vessel to stop bleeding. All right, let's move to the kidney or kidneys, I should say. Is there a typical presentation for the kidney injury? You know, we probably talk about the flank pain. What should initial workup be? Yep. Flank pain, bruising. If you have trauma that has um, associated fractures to the thoracic or lumbar spine, that's a high risk for kidney injury. So typically with any kid with abdominal trauma, we'll get a urine analysis. And if we have gross hematuria on the urinalysis or greater than 50 red cells per high powered field, then we will potentially image the kidneys. But what's important to know about kidney injury is a normal UA does not rule out renal injury. So if you have other things that make you worried about renal injury, you might still need to image those kids. And there is a grading system for kidney injuries, as we like to have grading systems for all types of injuries. Can you discuss that a bit and if that changes management based on grade? Yeah, so I'll just mention that all the solid organs have grading systems. For the most part, your decision to do surgery for liver and spleen does not depend on the grade of the injury. The grade of the injury is based on what you see on the CT scan and does not necessarily correlate with the need for surgery. That's a little different with kidney injury. So in kidney injury, it goes grade one through five, and grades one through three typically can be managed non-operatively. That's if you have a subcapsular hematoma or a laceration that does not involve the collecting system. But if you have a grade four, that's an injury to your renal artery or vein or a laceration into the collecting system or a grade five, which basically means you've avulsed your kidney from the blood system, those need surgery. So the higher grade kidney injuries do need surgery because they're not perfusing their kidney. And then we can finish with the individual abdominal organs that are fairly rare injuries, and we'll start with the intestines. Yep. Intestinal injury, I've only seen one of these in my career. They're exceedingly rare, but they are more common in kids than adults. And the classic place that we think of it is a kid who falls off their bike and gets the handlebar into their abdomen. That's where it's really described. It can also happen in motor vehicle collisions where they are wearing their lap belt, but they throw their shoulder belt behind them because it's going around their neck. And then the kids get a lap belt injury if they're in a motor vehicle crash. What is so hard about these injuries? is delayed diagnosis is really common. These kids often have very reassuring abdominal exams at initial presentation and don't really develop symptoms or abdominal exam findings until days later when they're starting to develop peritonitis from the perforation or the hematoma on their their bowel, typically their small bowel. The other thing that's tough with these is you can miss them on CT. So even if I've gotten a CT early on that has looked normal, if I have a kid that is progressing with worsening abdominal pain or has a really suspicious bruising pattern, that's a kid that's going to be observed in the hospital and potentially explored for that bowel injury. And these kids really need to be followed with serial abdominal exams. Then we'll finish up with the pancreas. Yeah, the pancreas. And I've seen a couple of these. And again, this is the handlebar into the belly that causes pancreatic injury. And I've seen, I think, two or three kids who fell off their bike who got a handlebar into their belly. And then 
days later presented with pancreatic laceration. And this is another tough one that early on might have very subtle exam findings or no exam findings, sometimes a tender epigastrium, so tenderness around the belly button, and sometimes a completely normal exam. And what's tough about these is sometimes you can miss these injuries on CT scan if it involves the duct. If it's an obvious fracture to the pancreas, you'll see it. But if it's a small duct injury, sometimes you need additional dye studies to really pick that up. So you have to have a high index suspicion. This is also a situation where we can do some labs. So we can look at lipase on blood work. And if the lipase is elevated, it might push us to do imaging to look for pancreatic injury. But the degree of elevation of the lipase doesn't predict a severity of injury. And if you have normal labs, that does not rule out a pancreatic injury. What's really worrisome about these injuries is you can transect your pancreatic duct and you can have leakage of the pancreatic enzymes into your belly and ultimately develop a big pancreatic pseudocyst, which kind of digests things and saponifies the fat. So this is a really serious injury. And this is one situation where outcomes actually might be worse with non-operative management. There is a bit of controversy here, but a lot of the literature that I looked at and the trauma surgeons I've worked up tend to go to the OR with these patients. If you do non-operative management, it's kind of a miserable course for the patient because they don't get to eat or drink. They get to get an NG tube. They get antibiotics. It's kind of misery in the hospital, whereas surgery sometimes takes care of it a little more quickly. So the bottom line, be nice to your pancreas, right? Be nice to your pancreas, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, we're a sports medicine podcast. The big question on everybody's mind, parent, coach, and the uh, kids is, when can I get back to sports, doc, after these injuries? Are, are there any evidence-based criteria as far as guiding us after these different types of abdominal injuries, when we can expect someone to be able to safely get back to sports? Right. That's always the question. How quickly can I get back to sports? And that's a tough one to answer because there are no evidence-based guidelines. There's no randomized control trials to guide us. The expert opinion is that kids can start doing very light activity. And when we say light activity, we're just talking about walking around after the injury. And that in this situation, the grade of the injury might actually guide return to sport. For a lower grade liver or spleen injury, these kids are roughly out for three months. And for a higher grade injury, it could be up to six months. And it's really individualized based on the patient and the trauma surgeon. So it's something the trauma surgeon is going to specifically guide. And then once they are cleared to go back to sports, they, of course, need kind of a graduated return to sport process to kind of recondition and, and make sure they do well with activity and exercise. So we like to end our podcast with something that we call the Pearl of the Podcast. I always tell everybody, consider this your take-home point or that useful nugget that you don't want our listeners to forget about this topic. So Sue, what is your Pearl of the Podcast? So my Pearl of the Podcast as a pediatric emergency physician is pay attention to vital signs. Vital signs really matter, and we sometimes forget to notice subtle tachycardias or in other clinical situations, elevated blood pressures, elevated respiratory rates. So really watch those vital signs. Good stuff. So I'd like to thank Dr. Sue Karelik for spending time with us today discussing a topic that I truly think is something that we probably don't spend enough time thinking about, but is something that will likely come up at some point in someone's career if they're involved in sports medicine coverage of athletes. Certainly not as common as our other types of trauma, but very important to keep some knowledge in our brain about. We appreciate you taking the time to listen today. Please take a moment to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast streaming platform, and we appreciate when you leave a comment as well. Please be sure to check out our entire podcast library in more detail at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. 
I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.